So let's get into that one now. Because now, maybe you'll understand what's hidden in those files. Well, stuff that they're teasing us with. My husband believes so strongly that one Zane should not just be the most comfortable life possible, but that we should all do something to right the wrongs we see and not just complain about them. What the hell that has to do with what we are doing here? Will you tell me? Now, let's start this because I'm gone.
Ari gave her protection. He had private security protecting her. She went there to get what the Europeans had hold. If you look at the Anassis story, and we'll get into that because it's important because it ties into JFK a lot and our CIA a lot. You'll see that his only living heir, I guess, Athena, lives in Brazil, married some horse jumper. Why is it that all these prominent figures in history all flee to Brazil or South America? Like, and I'm not saying dictators only, right? Because we do have our Hitlers and whatever, but the Medici family ran all of these big ancient families. And as you see, 19 tells you exactly what you need to know. Jackie attempted to redeem herself. She went to him saying, hey, protect me and I'll help you. I know what they want. Marry me and I'll help you. I know what they want. But at the same time, she was destroying him. It's almost like the way Snowden ran to Russia. It's so weird. You know, it's kind of like that. Protect me and I'll tell you everything. It was just an agreement to keep her safe. That's my wife. But in the end, the CIA got to him. If they could take his son out, they could take anyone out. And then he went to Paris. Why would you go to Paris to a hospital? That's insane. He should have stayed in Greece. But you went to Paris. And that's where they got everything they needed. Everything. Now, maybe we should look at... Maybe we should see, in her own words, what Jackie... Kennedy Onassis had said about Martin Luther King. Now, this was on the side. Remember, because during that period of time, all these things were happening. Please pay attention. Never wrote a memoir, but now more than eight hours of a recorded interview that she did nearly six months after her husband was assassinated gives the world an entirely new perspective on the former first lady. In these interviews, she speaks candidly about her husband, the president, and his private thoughts on some of the powerful historical figures of the time. It was only months after her husband's assassination when a 34-year-old widow sat down to record more than eight hours of recollections about her husband and his most private thoughts while they were still fresh, even raw. JFK and his brother Bobby on Lyndon Johnson, the new president. Bobby told me this later, and I know Jack said it to me sometimes. He said, oh God, can you ever imagine what would happen to the country if Lyndon was president? On the day her husband was buried, the former first lady had written to thank LBJ for all his kindness, calling him, quote, Jack's right arm. And more than that, we were friends, all four of us. Almost a half century later, we hear a different view. Perhaps, per, perhaps you keep your enemies closer to you than a pacemaker is to a heart. See, the media needed to destroy the narrative when they feel that something may be coming out. Man, wait, wait. Now listen to this. They were friends. His right arm, LBJ. Do you remember that fire in D.C. that was linked to Lyndon B. Johnson? <laughs> remember a couple years ago, this massive fire of a house? So weird. So freaking weird. 
you know, while I can sit here and tell you everything that's happening, I think it's worse if you do. If anyone sits there and gives you that information, it can pacify, but it can also drive you insane because you'll realize just how much you didn't know. But rather than tell you, I have to show you. Half colored by Bobby Kennedy's resentments after the assassination and her annoyance after this call from Johnson a month after her husband's death, two days before Christmas. I hope that you're doing all right. Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. You know how much we love you? You have a good Christmas there. Thank you. The same to you. Tonight. Hours later, Jackie learned LBJ was in fact showing off for a room full of reporters. Now is the time. Just as stunning are criticisms of the leader of the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. But they need to be understood in context. At the time, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was trying to incite divisions between the Kennedys and Dr. King by telling Bobby Kennedy that Dr. King was overheard on FBI wiretaps making crude comments about Jackie Kennedy kissing her husband's coffin on the day of that funeral. The tapes were supposed to be locked in a vault for a century, but Caroline Kennedy decided to release them now, all eight and a half hours, uncensored, because she felt you don't change someone else's oral history. She also explained it isn't surprising her mother would have, at the time, made some statements she might have changed later. As Caroline told Parade, when she first read the transcript shortly after her mother died, they reminded her that her mother felt what made historical figures human was what made them more interesting. And indeed, emerging from this oral history is a very different Jacqueline Kennedy. Not the long familiar public figure whose whispery voice guided us through the White House. It just seemed to me such a shame when we came here to find hardly anything of the past in the house. Or the fashion icon whom the president joked he accompanied to Paris. I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris, and I've enjoyed it. This Jacqueline Kennedy is far more complex with a keen eye for the characters around her husband and a feel for diplomacy and politics. I mean, politics, things do change so quickly, and Jack would never, um, he'd often say that, never getting anything so deep that you've lost all chance of conciliation. Wasn't that fascinating to listen to? Well, let's take a listen to something else now. Let's listen to Jack, Jackie O's Secret Service Agent. You know, I just want you to know that if a secret service agent is talking, usually they're lying because they can't really speak. They're agency tapped. They have no loyalty. But sometimes they slip, like this guy did. Consider all of this script written with a few deviations. Secret service agent revealed what she was really like behind closed doors. But before we start, please take a moment to give this video a like, subscribe, and hit the bell so you'll never miss these great stories. Jackie Kennedy, the one-time First Lady of the United States, was a compelling figure throughout her life. Even now, many years after her passing, people are fascinated by her. But there's one man out there who knew her better than either her biographers or the actresses who have portrayed her because he worked alongside her. His name is Clint Hill, and he's happy to tell the world what Jackie was really like. Hill was Jackie's bodyguard, the man whose job it was to be at her side constantly and protect her from harm. He'd already had experience before he joined her security detail. He had spent the early part of the 60s protecting President Eisenhower and traveling the world as part of his team. He's an old man now, 
but his memory of those days is still sharp. And Hill remembers being assigned to protect Jackie. He told North Dakota Living Magazine in 2013, I got the word that I was to go back to Washington for a new assignment. After an intensive interview, they advised me I was going to be assigned to Mrs. Kennedy. I was very disappointed. Hill had been crestfallen because the task of keeping the First Lady safe seemed so far away from the excitement of protecting the President. He told the magazine, I had seen what life was like for the agents assigned to Mrs. Eisenhower, Mrs. Truman and other First Ladies. It meant they were going to tea parties and fashion shows. Straight away Hill had assumed that the assignment would mean a very dull, boring life, and I didn't want any part of it. But of course, he was wrong. He remembered, as it turned out, it was the best assignment anyone could have ever had. Because Jackie was so happy and we did so many different things. Jackie certainly wasn't about to be a quiet and submissive first lady. Before she even married her famous husband she had been noted for her wit, intelligence, style and beauty. And she was ambitious, too. When she graduated high school in 1947, she'd had to note in the yearbook what her life goal was. Hers was not to be a housewife. As soon as she was able, Jackie set about revolutionizing the role of the president's wife. She was determined to make her mark, and one of the first things she did was head a massive project to restore the White House to its former glory. Its historical importance had been forgotten over the years, she thought. In a 1961 interview with Life magazine Jackie bemoaned the fact that the thousands of annual visitors looking round the historic edifice could see practically nothing that dates back before 1948. She went to insist, everything in the White House must have a reason for being there. It would be sacrilege merely to redecorate it, a word I hate. It must be restored, and that has nothing to do with decoration. That is a question of scholarship. Jackie's project succeeded in every way possible. She started a committee dedicated to preserving historical White House artifacts and had some of the most important pieces restored and put on display. She also worked on the Oval Office, and she's a big part of the reason it looks as grand as it does today. Arguably Jackie's main career during her time in the White House was that of preservationist. She was also involved in preservation issues overseas, something that only enhanced America's standing in the world. And she won an honorary Emmy Award for hosting special TV show about the restored White House. But despite her work improving the residence of America's head of state, Jackie was actually not particularly interested in politics by all accounts. She tended not to even go with her husband when he made public appearances. Instead, according to Hill, she was utterly devoted to raising her young children. Hill told North Dakota Living, she was a very dedicated, devoted mother. She wanted her two children, Caroline and John, to grow up as unspoiled as possible. I always said that was not possible since they were the children of a president but she really tried in every way to make sure that they didn't become spoiled. The Secret Service agents had to play a role in this too. Hill remembered, Jackie, made sure that the agents who were around her didn't help the children get up if they fell down, if they had a problem like that, that was something they had to handle themselves. We wanted to keep them safe, but she asked us to allow them as much natural growth as children as possible. Hill admired Jackie a great deal. Whenever they went overseas, he told the magazine, Mrs. Kennedy would attract large crowds. The president would draw 50,000 people at an event. But, when she was with him, the crowd would be 100,000 it would double. Indeed, the agent described Jackie's star factor as a definite diplomatic asset for the United States. It probably goes without saying that Jackie's life is of interest to Hollywood. The story of her time in the White House, which came to such an infamously tragic end, has often been played out on screen. Actresses including Katie Holmes, Jacqueline Bissett, Jennifer Goodwin and Natalie Portman have all portrayed her. 
Of all those performances, Portman's is probably the best known today. She played the starring role in 2016's Jackie, directed by Pablo Lorraine and written by Noah Oppenheim. The actress, who was already highly acclaimed as a performer, earned her second Academy Award nomination for playing the grieving Mrs. Kennedy. In 2017 Portman talked with magazine The Hollywood Reporter about the difficulties of playing a famous historical figure. She said, it's different if they're still alive, then you have this responsibility to them. So maybe it was freeing, in a way, knowing that she wasn't going to watch it, you know? But there's one person who wasn't so sure about the much-praised film, Clint Hill. He was, after all, a witness to many of the events the movie depicted, and he didn't feel like the film captured the real Jackie Kennedy at all. In 2017, he told the i-newspaper about his issues with Jackie. Hill said in the exclusive interview, I walked away shaking my head because of the inaccuracies in the film. They made, Jackie, seem like she was a smoker, when she was not, she did smoke, but it wasn't continuous. They invented that she drank heavily and she did not, and he was angry that the filmmakers had invented some scenes, too. Hill told the magazine, they had her come to me and asking me a question about the assassination and she asked me what caliber gun it was, that never happened. Unsurprisingly, Hill still vividly remembers all the details of that event. Hill's issue wasn't with Portman's actual performance though. The former agent told The Hollywood Reporter, she did a remarkable job, especially in her speaking. I know that it had to have been very difficult and she must have worked very hard. It would be great if she could win the Oscar. Of course, in the event Portman missed out, with Emma Stone scooting the gong for La La Land. Actor David Caves plays Hill in Jackie, but he doesn't get a lot of screen time. Hill expressed frustration about that in the interview, saying, from the time the assassination occurred through to the funeral, I was with Jackie every waking moment. He also added that Oppenheim hadn't consulted him about the screenplay. Hill said of Jackie, I was really her confidant. We were very, very close. She and I had a wonderful relationship, very professional. We discussed many things. When she went to Italy in 1962, she didn't take any staff with her except for her personal assistant, her maid and me. I ended up being her social secretary, her press secretary, her ambassador. Though many years have passed since Jackie's death, Hill continues to write about her, the relationship they shared, and life at the White House when the Kennedys were there. Books he's written include Five Days in November and Mrs. Kennedy and Me. He also talks in interviews about the woman he saw when the cameras were off. In 2013 when asked to describe his former friend, Hill told North Dakota Living, most people saw Mrs. Kennedy as a Barbie doll sitting on a pedestal. That's not who she was. She was really down to earth, a very elegant and classy lady, but she had a very body sense of humor. And she had plenty of hobbies outside of her restoration work, too. Hill remembered her as very active and athletic, and said, she loved to ride horses and was an excellent horsewoman. She loved to water ski, loved to play golf, loved to play tennis, and walk. It kept me on my toes. While protecting Jackie, Hill might have even invented a new cocktail along the way. The Clint, a double Campari, a single vodka, soda, ice and an orange slice, was apparently created by Hill himself in 1962 when he accompanied the first lady for a sailboat vacation on Italy's Amalfi coast. Hill has an Instagram account now. and he often shares stories about Jackie on there. In May 2019, he made a post marking the 25th anniversary of Jackie's death from cancer. Sadly, his own mother had passed away on the exact same date 20 years prior to Jackie, so it bore a lot of significance to him. On that landmark date Hill wrote on Instagram, 
I was fortunate to know Mrs. Kennedy on a personal level and I have fond memories of our time together in India, Pakistan, Morocco, Italy, and France, as well as Palm Beach, Hyannis Port, and Middleburg, VA. I can still see the joy on her face as she rode her favorite horse across the Virginia countryside. So, I feel his words are just like the way I feel about some people that I would be tasked to watch throughout my life. Like, you know, a lot of people don't understand why I simply love Patrick Byrne, and that's because you break for people. Your heart breaks for people when you see that they're not how they're perceived and how they're coaxed into situations, uh, hoping that they help their country, but at the same time destroying themselves. And and this is it. He had pure compassion for her, but he also had a mission dedicated to him from Eisenhower. And we'll delve into that just a little bit. I've talked about this before, but I think it's important just to mention just a couple minutes. Um, let's talk North Dakota because it's really weird, right? Why would her shadow be interviewed by North Dakota Living and not by Time Magazine or The Post or The New Yorker? Or why is it that it was said there? Because your Secret Service agents are your shadows, which if you remember, there were infiltrators with Secret Service that were posing as DHS. If you remember that, do you remember that scandal that happened under President Trump where they were trying to get with the Secret Service agents and they were renting apartments and doing things? You can't you see what's happening? No, you obviously can't. You're too enthralled in the CIA operation. I'm here as your narrator to help with that. Now, let me show you a clip of something. I told you why North Dakota is important, aside from the trafficking, ah, 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 aside from the Chinese, ah, 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 ah. It's a lot deeper than that. Specific states have specific histories. They, you know, there was a meeting at Mr. Real Estate's house and so on and so forth. But every time that I would get like more interested in this case, it, it would just, just seem like, like I would meet people who knew something, right? Who knew something about this, who knew something about that, who knew this person, whose aunt was involved, this person, that person. And I called it the psychic wave, right? And while we were doing our video series last year, while we were heavy into the, uh, the investigation phase of it, people who were working with me got on the same psychic wave. It was really, really a, kind of a wild trip. And so this, what just happened this past week with me getting these North Dakota documents is in a way a part of that as well. And let me explain. So part of these North Dakota documents are going to be dealing with, uh, and there's stories within stories here. And I'm sure that most people who have read these haven't picked up on one tenth of the subtleties that me and my, and my, and my friends have. But there's stories within stories in these documents that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks, okay? Today's just episode one. We're only getting through the first 25 pages today of a 53-page document. And then there's a whole other document to go through, okay? So we're going to be doing this for, for quite a while. So last week, I was invited to... Uh, so, so getting back to the thing, the story within a story, excuse me for losing my train of thought there, Hank Chinati is a story within a story in these in these documents. Okay, I bet you people are like, "Huh, Hank Chinati is a story within a story." Well, Eric picked up on it, and he's going to come on later and 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 talk about that a little more. 
But it's so interesting that we got these documents this week because, hey, we, we just celebrated Hank Chinotti's 80th birthday party. I was there last week. We did a pop-up on it. I showed you guys pictures of him. I even have a video of him singing Hound Dog, which I'm not going to show because it's a little too poignant and a little too personal, and I don't really think that it's appropriate to show that. But um, the point is we're hanging out with Chinotti again, and we're, and we're wondering about Chinotti, and then all of a sudden these documents come in, and a big piece of the puzzle of Chinotti comes in. We do this show on Veronica Lucan and Chinotti, and then all of a sudden these North Dakota documents come in. And let me tell you something. North Dakota was all about Maury Terry and Hank Chinotti, all right? Those two are the main protagonists here in this in this North Dakota story. So these these documents really could not have come at a more at a at a better time. And I, for one, am super super duper excited to start talking to you about them. And so to that end, why don't we just get started, guys? North Dakota, episode one, Tom and Darlene. Yeah, Jack Myers. Yeah, of course. The cops in uh, the cops. In, let me put that on so everyone can see it. The cops in North Dakota. Okay, I get that, but you know, please allow me a little dramatic flair. Give me one second. All right, guys, we have a lot to do today. Okay, and I'm hoping that it's fun, but it's really more inf informative. Uh, and so we are going to deal with some serious issues today, with serious, serious issues. Okay. And, of course, the issue is mainly what's the deal with John Carr and David Berkowitz? All right. But anyway, Tom and Darlene. So, of course, Tom and Darlene are uh, two of John Carr's friends from North Dakota. And they were um, interviewed in this document by a man named Michael Armienti. Okay, and we'll talk about Michael Armienti in a few minutes and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I call these documents the missing link, all right? Yes, May Brussel, you're definitely going to need to take notes today. And by the way, at the end of today's um, live stream, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link you to where you can find these documents on your own because <clears throat> it's interesting. These documents were withheld from me. These these were put up on the official Maury Terry Facebook page, um, and I and there was a specific directive to go, go that went out that said do not show these to Manny. And, and I think and I think I know why, um, considering what I found in these documents that, in my opinion, completely blow up Maury Terry's thesis. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna let that little punchline out now. So why? And if you have a problem, call in and debate me. All right. Now we're into debate time. I'm, I'm through fighting with you, with you guys. It's all about debate. We have serious issues in the Son of Sam world to contend with. Uh, they are hiding your video. I had to go through Twitter. Yeah, you know, that happens sometimes, Jack. I'm, I can't really worry about that, but I appreciate you bringing it up. So I'm calling these documents the missing link. Why? Because, well, they're the missing link for me in, in my video series. We recently ended our investigation after a year and two months of course now i'm investigating again because i got these great new documents but we ended with we ended with the net the netto family and then we ended with 57 pages of berkowitz's writings from his apartment and while i still think that those 57 pages are incredibly important to paint a, a picture of what david berkowitz's mindset was going through in the last year before he got arrested those those letters can be interpreted in any way 
There are people who, who will never accept the fact that those letters were probably written by a psychotic and delusional, okay, no doubt. The medieval, we have, we have the duty as Son of Sam researchers to vet them out and to fact check Maury Terry to make sure that he was telling us the truth. It's our duty. Well, like, I'm sorry, we don't have any other choice in the matter. Again, a name given by Veronica Lucan. That was the first person to bring up Reeve Rockman, Veronica Lucan, who we just did a show on the other day. North Dakota, the Sons of Sam. Eisenhower knew how important North Dakota is. This guy has like only like 2,000 followers, but all he focuses on is the Son of Sam, which is headquartered out in North Dakota. If you guys saw the Netflix series about it, there was one episode just about Minot, North Dakota, the same Minot where I had exposed military officials bargaining to have sex with babies, legit six-month-old infants. They got arrested. Four of them did. One actually went to trial. The other three disappeared. It's so weird. So weird. So weird. It's so, it, it was like the lowest hang. North Dakota is the lowest hanging fruit of corruption. It is known as one of the most corrupt states. And it goes back to the early 40s. I mean, after all, North Dakota was an official state until, um, after, I think it was like 2012. It's official or was it 2002? I don't know. But it wasn't an official state. There's a reason for that. I'm pretty sure there's files on that. That's a good question. People should dig and find out why it wasn't an official state and what happened. Because the laws, the way they seem, look like they're created to allow corruption to fester. Now, today I'm doing a longer show because tomorrow I'm not having one. So for the archivist, please split this up into digestible 1.5 um, our shows, please, if you can, uh, because I have actually a school meeting at Phoebe School who are obviously replying to my um, <laughs> Sixth Circuit case. Um, I think their deadline just passed, and now we get to respond to their filing. Uh, and then that case is going to be heard at the Sixth Circuit. So anyway, I wanted to bring this up because, well, ah, all ties back to Kennedy Tale. But you'll see. Let's see this exclusive interview from Fox 26 with Son of Sam Speaks, which is only a year old. If you read the JFK files, you'll be pissed. Only on Fox tonight. It's an in-person meeting no one would expect. A longtime crime victims advocate and one of the nation's most notorious serial killers sits down face to face. Fox 26's Randy Wallace joining us live from Southwest Houston with this exclusive. Randy. Rossi, for some 20 years, crime victims advocate Andy Kahn and serial killer David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, have been writing to each other. Why? They share a common goal called murderabilia or profiting from heinous headline-grabbing crimes. I want Stacey's killer. The Son of Sam. The Son of Sam. David Berkowitz. The Son of Sam. David Berkowitz. The Son of Sam. At the age of 23, David Richard Berkowitz spent a year terrorizing New York City. From July 1976 through July 1977, he killed six people and wounded seven others. He gained worldwide notoriety by not only eluding police, 
but mocking them by leaving letters about his deadly crime spree. He's been in prison now for 44 years. It's probably the most bizarre partnership. Since 2000, crime victims advocate Andy Kahn has led the charge to stop high-profile killers and others from profiting from their deadly deeds. But I also knew that perhaps a lot of the killers, like like Berkowitz and others, might not. Right? We can't have them making money off of our state secrets. How dare you? We now threw you in jail. You're going to own that shit and shut up. You're not going to make money off of us using you as an asset. You see how that works? Don't talk. Not even be aware their stuff was being sold. I mean, so I just, I did what you would do. I went fishing. And he caught a big one. Constant letters to 20 serial killers. 12 responded. And there were two that really, really stood out. David Berkowitz was one of them. It's being sold. With Berkowitz's help, Khan pushed for laws that would bring the profitable murderabilia industry to a halt. Okay, he's a serial killer. Like, he's the one that you watch Netflix shows about um, and you read about in the news. Remember, Khan and Sidney Zyker requested and got an interview with Berkowitz for a Crime Stoppers podcast. They traveled to a prison in upstate New York. When you think of a serial killer, you kind of expect you're going to meet them. They're going to come in in shackles. There's going to be guards everywhere. I'm not absolving him. And then the question is, are they really in jail or do they just set it up to make it look like he's in jail and they sit down and they just watch it? I mean, this is a collective reality. And, you know, this is lights, camera, action. So you can ask yourself, you know, are they really in jail? Are they really arrested and put in there? Are they really in jail? Uh, it's just a question. Valid question. I mean... You always have to tell people when you're visiting someone in jail, right? This is really good because I've requested to go and meet with Ghislaine Maxwell and no one's responding. I just want to interview her. Why can't I get an interview? What's wrong? Of what he did. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, he deserves to be where he is, and he knows it as well. And to be frank, as I told him one time, you know, if you were in Texas, you and I wouldn't be talking because you wouldn't be breathing. That's just reality. Do you mind if I put on you? So he's just sitting there, and I'm like clipping, and my hands are like, <laughs> I hope I don't mess up. Nobody would ever dream this was a notorious son of Sam that caused terror and rampage in the streets of New York City. In regards to what happened with me in the past, uh -huh. which I'm so very sorry for, you know, I'm still a human being. He's a human being. We have feelings, we have emotions, we have concerns, I have regrets. And uh, I feel that it's, it's the right thing to do. We hit it off since we're two Jewish guys. Berkowitz has no internet access, but does have email. For many years, I was in the dark ages when it came to electronics. You know, and um, uh, just about maybe a year and a half ago, they finally allowed us to have these uh, small tablets where I can email them just so we stay in touch now. The two-hour discussion includes some surprises. I did not know that he had communicated with one of the victim's families. I was not aware of that. Berkowitz is no doubt a model prisoner who has done what society would want an inmate to do. This person has a soul too, and what are we asking of him as a violent offender who needs to stay where he is? Again, I'll say he needs to stay where he is. Now I'll have more on this unprecedented interview between Khan and Berkowitz on tomorrow night's 
newscast at 9. Now be sure to check out the Crime Stoppers podcast. We've got links for you on our website. Reporting live from the southwest side, Randy Wallace, Fox 26 News. Yeah, you should follow along Crime Stoppers, so that way you can perpetuate the conspiracy theories that the CIA wants. See, I've always said that the devil's biggest trick is to convince you he doesn't exist. Well, the only way psyops work is when you don't know what's real and what's not, and then the devil has won. And this is why it's important to stick to the things that you know are factually true. And what do you know are factually true? Not a lot. But it's okay. Because if you start tuning into that gut you have, boy, 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 things just manifest in the weirdest way. Now let's get back to Jackie O. Earl shares the sorrow that Lady Kennedy and her family bears. Your fascination was indeed a world event. I think most people of my age can remember exactly where they were and what they were doing when this happened. I think it was horrifying. I think it was terrifying to talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome, whatever doesn't even begin to discuss it. And you also have to think about, I think she and Arkansas made so many plans for the future and for bettering the country and moving forward. And then it was over. It was over like that. So it was not only the loss of her husband, the White House was over and all the dreams that went with it. Lee flew to Washington at once and was at her sister's side throughout the days to come. The funeral took place on the 25th of November, 1963. The day before, Kennedy's flag-draped coffin had lain in state at the U.S. Capitol building. Thousands had queued to pay their respects. A requiem mass was held at St. Matthew's Cathedral. Then President Kennedy was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Jackie's calm and dignified demeanor throughout won her widespread respect. The whole way she conducted herself during the funeral, she held the country together. I mean, everyone was falling apart. It was a terrible time for our country. And it was a British reporter that said that Jackie Kennedy gave the American people something they never had before, majesty. She brought great dignity and sadness to the affair. And standing at the graveside, you know, like a marble statue with a dark veil and the two children holding her hands. The images like that which went round the world, uh, she did a fantastic job of keeping the dignity of the presidency going. Jackie became a saint. She could do no wrong. There was such an innocence to America then. And who would have thought that some madman, some crazy little guy who weighs like 120 pounds, could kill the most powerful, charming, charismatic, witty, our leader. To 190 million Americans, he was president. To these three, he was a loving husband, devoted father. Jackie was scarred by what she had witnessed. She retold her account of the assassination again and again in grim and vivid detail. Barely sleeping, she became depressed and suicidal. Even those closest to Jackie found her behavior increasingly difficult. Her sister Lee was a great support, 
However, there was one person who understood better than the rest, JFK's younger brother Bobby, who became a surrogate father figure to Jackie's children. He really assumed the mantle of the leader of the Kennedy brothers. He was very close to Jackie and the kids, and they really looked at him as a father figure and so forth. They could speak to one another about their loss, and they didn't have to explain. You know, he's dead, we'll never see him again. They loved him so much, so I think that bound them together. While Jackie struggled as the months passed, the American people yearned to leave the trauma of Kennedy's death behind. Lee, too, wished to move on with her life. She had often felt hemmed in by her unofficial role in the presidential family. Now she could carve out a life that was her own. The writer Truman Capote was a friend of Lee. She was one of the group of beautiful and glamorous women he referred to as his swans. He pushed Lee into a career in acting for which she had no formal training. This would ultimately end in embarrassment. Capote was a great admirer of Lee. I think he admired Lee even more than Jackie. There was a time she kind of fashioned herself a photographer and she was taking photographs. And then she was on the road with the Rolling Stones, hanging out with those guys for a while. I think she was trying to make a way for herself. Because I think the old days where a woman could be a great beauty and marry well and hang out, I think those days were ending and you wanted to be a woman who did something. Truman Capote would build her up and say, oh, if you want to be an actress, I'll get a place in Tennessee Williams. We'll open it in Chicago. Kenneth will do your hair. East Saint Laurent will do the costumes. And it became a whole production. Whereas Lee couldn't say, I'm going to take acting classes. I'm going to study with so-and-so. And then maybe I'll try a little role. You know, Lee's first role, she's on television. On the first night of her run as the lead in the Philadelphia story in 1967, Lee was paralyzed with fear. She looked the part certainly, but couldn't act it. The reviews were terrible. After one further attempt appearing in a pan TV movie for ABC in early 1968, she left acting for good. Jackie, meanwhile, tried to rebuild her life. She had moved away from Washington and bought an apartment in Manhattan at 1045th Avenue, overlooking Central Park. With her two children, she attempted to settle into a life away from politics. However, still being very much in the public consciousness, she became target for photographer Ron Galella. He was one of the few paparazzi based in New York. I lived in the North Bronx, which was about 12 miles from mid-Manhattan. And I would spend a whole day. My routine was, I developed the film the night before, and I sell them. And the morning was marketing. I would go to these fan magazines. They would pick pictures, all celebrities, not just Jackie or Liz Taylor, Doris Day, Liza Minnelli, Colin Klein. All these stars were hot. I would get $1,000 for cover. So it was a big marketing in the morning. Then I would go to near Jackie's on Madison Avenue, and I would get Jackie shopping. She would buy shoes. She didn't even know I was there. Great shots. So this photographer that stalked her was stopped by Onassis. Well, it seems like this stalker photographer was actually intelligence, Air Force intelligence. I apologize for the pause. I'm on a system that doesn't let me see when I'm actually live. I can't see Rumble. I have to log into my app to look at the chats. Um, and I'm trying to keep the bandwidth down because I'm working on slim lines right here. So... 
what I was saying is <laughs> this photographer, former Air Force, helped create those amazing propaganda films too. You know, the ones that are on Enjoy the Show, telling you how they won Emmys and Oscars for their performances. He's a reporter. See, Jackie needed privacy because she thought she could outsmart them because she was hired at a young age, recruited, and placed. That's not how it works. See, if you do redemption to redeem yourself and bring it out all into the open, you can't use the same methods they do. You just go all out. And then, well, at her time, covert was still happening. Overt is what they tried to do in the end by slamming her and saying all these things about her or mocking her, you know, in her own words, I guess, you know, that they told us. But it's important for everyone to know that, um, you know, she was talking and some on the left were listening. Kind of like people are starting to listen now. There's going to be a third vote for Congress. What a show, what a show. But before we get into that, one thing I wanted to mention is how people don't seem to think how random things in today's pop culture actually have a meaning. Allow me to demonstrate that to you. Manufactured consent. Big topic right there. Something people should be paying attention to. Everything has a purpose. Every single sound bite you get. Well, there are some times that they mess it up. But you know, one thing a lot of people talk about is the Cuban Missile, Con the Cuban Missile Crisis. They have pigs. Let's see what Jackie Kennedy had to say about that. That should be interesting, right? Because everyone surrounding the assassination of that had nothing to do with the NASA letter, of course. Exclusive, a unique look inside Camelot. Camelot. The story is told by the First Lady about her husband, the President. The details are in those never-before-released tapes made by Jacqueline Kennedy just four months after John F. Kennedy's assassination. We're hearing them tonight, nearly 50 years after they were recorded, and ABC's Diane Sawyer joins us. Diane, what surprised you the most the first time you heard those tapes? Well, I think Cynthia, and I'm sure this was true for you too, the most surprising thing of all is that she did the tapes. We only saw the sunglasses and the smile. We never expected to learn what was behind it. But now we know from these tapes that she was irreverent, that she spoke very personally, including about who she was inside this very famous marriage. 
They are one of the most romanticized couples in American history, but their lives, their marriage, always hidden behind the curtains of Camelot. Life was almost always so sad that it didn't until you look back that you see what happened when. Now, for the first time, from the tapes, we know what she thought when she first met him. Jack was young and in love. You know, everything. It was a dinner party. She was a photographer for the society pages of a newspaper. She was dazzled by him. Jack was the most unselfconscious person I've ever seen. He just naturally could be attractive in a crowd or a room. Their daughter, Caroline Kennedy. Is there one phrase in the whole tape that you think about the most? Well, probably when she says of the White House, these were our happiest times. It's funny, uh, I used to worry about going into the White House. We'll be a goldfish bowl, the Secret Service, I'll never see my husband. Uh, then you found out that, um, you know, it was really the happiest time of my life, it was when we were the closest. After all, she arrived at the White House an unlikely political wife, refined sensibilities, a love of privacy. No one thought she was an asset. I was always a liability to him. Everyone thought I was a snob from Newport who had bouffant hair and had French clothes and hated politics. He knew I was being myself and that I did like to stay in the background. I think he appreciated that in a wife. And he married me really for the things I was. Beautiful, gracious, and an ardent student of history. Together, they read about all the great civilizations and dreamed of changes in America. And she says on the tape, he loved that most of all she was devoted to making him happy. You know, Jack, uh, well, I mean, I think a woman always adapts, and especially if you're very young and you get married and, you know, are unformed. You really become the kind of uh, wife that you, ha you can see that your husband wants. She says if she couldn't help him on politics, she can keep harmony at home. I think it's so good to be able to forgive quickly. I know that uh, that's a quality that Zach liked in me being married, that if ever there'd be a slight little, you know, cloud, I'd always be this, like, rush and say, oh, dear, did I upset you? Did I say something wrong? I'm so sorry. Or, uh, and he loved that. She tried not to ask questions about the troubles of the day, but remembers one time she asked about Vietnam. It was at the end of the day, and he said, oh, my God, um, he said, I've had that, uh, you know, on me all day. And I just, he just been swimming at the pool and sort of changed into his happy evening mood. And he said, don't remind me of that all over again. And I just felt so criminal. And I decided everyone should be trying to help Jack in whatever way they could. And remember, it is 1964, still someplace between the traditions of the past and the independence of the future. On the tapes, in her famously breathy voice, she tries to analyze different kinds of women. This is just my own sort of psychology. The black so obviously demanded from a woman a relationship between a man and a woman, where a man would be the, you know, the leader and a woman would be his wife and look up to him as a man. I always thought women who were scared of sex loved Adelaide. She's talking about the women who criticized her husband and supported Democrat Adlai Stevenson, who ran for president and lost. 
the challenges was yeah. involved. Yeah, not that there'd be the challenges, Jack, but it was a different kind mm-hmm. of man. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, all these sort of twisted, the poor little women whose lives hadn't worked out could find a bomb in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And Jack made them nervous. Someone said, where do you get your opinions? And I said, I get all my opinions from my husband. Which is true. How could I have any political opinions? You know, his were going to be the best. I mean, it was really rather happy Victorian or Asiatic yeah, relationship, yeah. which we have, which I have. The Japanese wife. Yeah, which I think is the best. But the woman who started out so shy would ultimately find her voice. We used to cherish the language and an emotion that unite us all. Dabbling other countries in the world on behalf of America, becoming one of the political stars. I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. And I've it. I think that as she became a greater and greater um, asset as in the world as well as um, that they became closer. Do you think it surprised him how she emerged in the White House suddenly? I think it surprised her. <laughs> <laughs> I rather love this Oh, the White House television tour he used to watch all the time. He was so sweet the way he was proud of me. Suddenly, everything had been a liability before. Then we got in the White House, all the things that I'd always done suddenly became wonderful. And I was so happy for Jack that he could be proud of me then. So I'm so happy to see him. In the years to come, the rest of us would read about other women, wonder about this marriage. She makes it clear the two of them lived for their children and each other. Was she happy? Well, I think she really was happy, and I think she really was, uh, she loved my father, and I think she uh, knew that he loved her. Mm, The book, Jacqueline Kennedy, Historic Conversations on Life with John F. Kennedy, comes out tomorrow. Comes out tomorrow. Everything. A book is written, a movie is made, because this is the story you need to know. Here's some raw footage of Aristotle and NASA's biggest mistake was going to France. To my humble days, I don't like to curse people around me. I mean, it, uh, the minute I think that there is a man, uh, I mean, regardless of his salary or so, as a human being, that all he, what he does is sits there and uh, all day long and he waits for me to, uh, if for 10 minutes that I might make use of it. I just can't stand it. Uh, I think it's, uh, well, of course it shouldn't be like that because then people wouldn't have secretaries and wouldn't have assistants, wouldn't have valets and so on. But, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, the very idea, even a chauffeur, uh, a car, the very idea that I'm uh, 10 hours, a man, a human being, that sits in a box with four wheels and he waits and waits what you're going to say, if you're going to say something. Sometimes we even forget to tell him to go and have his lunch or have his dinner. Uh, just, uh, I can't bear the idea. So that's why I try to do things as fast as I can by myself. It must have been going on for the last seven years. What I told them at the time, I said later on and again and again, we are very uh, too close and Dear friends, but unfortunately this statement doesn't fit the spicy part of the press. I had just finished the high school 
and I was going to come to Oxford. Instead of going to Oxford, I had everything prepared, clothes and so on. I found myself in spirit immigrating to the Arctic. Could you tell me, sir, how you feel at this, about this world? Like any other human being, I'm not anything special, exceptional. I, like any father would feel, it's a nice boy. He was a promising boy and a good boy. Particularly in the difficult days that we live. After the loss of his son, the confident public facade of Onassis began to crumble. The couple. I'm giving no interview. The only reason you're here is to cut short your trip. Please. Are you going to marry Mr. I said don't. I'm not answering any questions. Now stop it. We are very uh, two close and dear friends. But unfortunately, this statement doesn't suit the spicy part of the press. Never suited the press because Aristotle was smart. Maria Callas was the bee's knees. Everyone who was everyone went to watch her sing. She was a songbird that mesmerized them all. Her voice, incredible. So to end today's show with a bunch of questions for everyone, I want you to know that there are a lot of things that just don't seem to click. It's almost like heirs and heiresses around the world have the most tragic stories. While we talk about the Kennedys, the curse of the Kennedys and airplanes, let's not forget all those people killed in helicopter crashes and airplanes that were not heirs or heiresses, but people seeking to speak truth. You know, one person no one ever talks about, and it was just buried. There's a movie called Queen of the Damned. Aaliyah, great potential singer, who also died in a plane crash after visiting a special island. She just couldn't come to grips with it. Speaking of violence, did say, so weird that Biden went to St. Croix, almost like these golden passports. See, it's actually St. Kitts where the Africans are getting in, but St. Croix was the place where all these little children were hustled into Epstein's Island. And suddenly Biden turns up and they vacate that, uh, you know, we're going to do a lawsuit. Are you kidding? <laughs> and, you know, all the news is catching up. And I see online everyone, oh, my gosh, the 118th elections of Congress. Oh, my gosh. It's so like, what? It's so nail biting. It's so this. It's such a freaking show, right? The first round had McCarthy, Jeffries, and Biggs. The second round has McCarthy, Jeffries, and Jordan. And right now, we're almost at the cusp of it, and Jordan has 19 votes. And then we're going to have a third round, because obviously, no one has the majority. So we're just going to keep doing this game so we can have everyone focused on Congress, because we want them to be paying attention. All the normies need to be paying attention. This is how they lose attention. Because the more it is a circus, the more you check it out. So anyone telling you, Oh, look, this is a struggle. We don't need McCarthy. We don't need this. It's all narrative. In the end, uh, the deals were already made. Why? I'm so angry. So there's a lot going on that people shouldn't know. Because we don't need Black Thursdays.
there's a lot of things that people shouldn't be delving into. Because as someone who knows, and you can take that as you wish, you can say you don't know anything, fine. If that makes you happy by saying it, then so be it. But as someone that knows the real face of evil that is the fabric of society globally, when I had my reality shattered, guess what I did? I choose not to know the depths of it. I do not need the depths of it. In my life, all of you would say, if a crime happened against you by someone you cared for, you want to know every detail. I'm going to tell you. No, you fucking don't. You just want to throw that out and put your head in the sand and say, that shit was bad. I'm going to think the worst happened, even if the worst didn't happen. Because then any foundation you created, any relationship you created with the media, with your loved one, with your friend, with your institution, whatever that is, it is destroyed where you can't even move. Really weird that Jordan is still at 19 votes. Fuck's sake. Can you make it any more blatant? All right. Let's move on to look at the most famous heirs and heiresses with seriously tragic pasts. You know, makes you wonder. Caroline was spared and why? Makes you wonder. Or was she? I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe they're not convinced that her brother's dead. So maybe she's alive so they can watch. Who knows? Right after this video, we'll watch some scariest thing caught on live TV. There's one story in there that I'd uh, like you to take a look at, but that's after this one. Let's go for the most famous heirs and heiresses in their tragic pasts or deaths. Goes money can't buy happiness. Many children of business tycoons have fallen into hardship, criminal activity, addiction, and more. Here are the tragic stories of some of the most well-known heirs and heiresses. Patty Hearst, granddaughter of newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped at her college apartment at Berkeley by a terrorist group at the age of 19 in February of 1974. The group called itself the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, and they demanded Patty's father, Randolph Apperton Hearst, donate millions of dollars in food to Californians in need. But in another shocking twist, surveillance video later showed Patty actively participating in a crime spree alongside her kidnappers. The saga didn't end well. Six of the members of the SLA were killed by Los Angeles police, while Hearst was arrested in September of 1975 and ultimately sentenced to seven years behind bars. President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence, however, and Hearst was later pardoned by President Bill Clinton. Why? Well, it's still widely contested today what really happened. Hearst claimed she was brainwashed, threatened, and abused, while prosecutors claimed she was in on it all along. Where the truth lies will probably never be known. John Paul Getty III, grandson of oil tycoon John Paul Getty, was attending a boarding school in Italy when he was kidnapped in Rome in 1973. Getty III lived in Italy as a teenager and went to boarding school there. One day, he just disappeared. His mother received a ransom note two days later, demanding $17 million in exchange for his freedom. His mother was unable to pay and sought help from the famous family patriarch, who was reluctant to pay as he didn't believe the boy had truly been kidnapped. The kidnappers finally lost patience. They lopped off Getty III's ear and mailed it to a newspaper as proof of their sincerity. Getty III's unfeeling grandfather finally agreed to pay the ransom, but he managed to whittle the asking price down to $3.2 million. Even then, he only paid out $2.2 million himself. 
maximum amount he could claim as a tax deduction. The rest he considered a loan that had to be paid back by his grandson at 4% interest. Getty III recalled the terrifying kidnapping experience years later to Rolling Stone magazine, saying that he tried to escape, stealing a knife and using it to drill a people. By the time he was finally ransomed, he had been a captive for five months. The experience left a terrible toll. Getty III fell into drug addiction and suffered a narcotics-induced stroke in 1981, leaving him paralyzed until his death in 2011. Known as America's poor little rich girl, Barbara Hutton was heiress to the Woolworth Company Trust. She flaunted her fortune and was the extravagant epitome of inherited wealth to the public. But her childhood was fraught with tragedy. Hutton stumbled upon her mother's dead body when she was just four years old. Her father remarried and neither he nor her stepmother showed any interest in being parents. They were reportedly neglectful, shipping her off to various friends and relatives and sending her away to boarding school at the earliest chance. She even spent holidays alone at school because no one bothered to pick her up. That isolation and neglect she experienced as a child may have contributed to her fickle and needy love life. Hutton was constantly seeking love and attention, and that led to seven failed marriages, a drug and alcohol addiction, and struggles with anorexia and depression. Tragically, her only son was killed in a plane crash at the age of 27. Hutton said, All the unhappiness in my life has been caused by men. I think I'm pretty timid about marriage, but I'm also too timid to live alone, and life doesn't make sense without men. She died at the age of 66 with only $3,500 to her name. Doris Duke was the heiress to tobacco billionaire and president of the American tobacco company Buchanan Duke. Doris inherited his wealth at just 12 years old and actually had to sue her own mother two years later to prevent her from selling the family's assets. After two failed marriages and the death of her daughter, Doris became the prime suspect in the suspected killing of her friend of 10 years, Eduardo Torello. On their way into town to Newport, Rhode Island, Doris reportedly slid into the driver's side of the vehicle while Torello was out opening the gate to her home. She then drove into him and ran him over. The death was ruled an accident. A later Vanity Fair investigation found strong evidence suggesting that Duke had intentionally killed Torella and paid off the authorities in a cover-up, but nothing was ever proven. Just days before her own death, Duke reportedly rewrote her will and left her $1.2 billion estate to her butler's executor. Many suspected foul play there as well, but again, there was no proof. Abigail Folger's tragic story has been portrayed in numerous films, including 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Heir to the Folger's coffee fortune, she was one of the five victims of the Charles Manson murders, alongside her boyfriend and their mutual friend, actress Sharon Tate. Folger spent most of her young life trying to find herself. She eventually found purpose working as a volunteer social worker for the Los Angeles County Welfare Department, focusing on helping children at the Watts Ghetto. She was also involved in politics and donated generously to Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign, while also working for a city council campaign in Los Angeles. Folger's wealth, intelligence, and charm made her an easy companion to the stars. She and her beau had been asked by Tate to stay with her while Tate's husband, director Roman Polanski, was still away on business. Tragically, none of Tate's house guests made it out alive that night. Folger was just 26 years old. The Kennedy family has more than its fair share of tragedy, and one of Robert Kennedy's sons, David, was no exception. Not only did he have to endure his father's assassination, which led to developing a heroin and alcohol addiction, he died a tragic public death at the tender age of 28. David led a troubled young adulthood, particularly after his father's assassination. According to the Kennedys, an American drama, he said, No one ever talked to me about what I was feeling. Nobody ever talked to me about my father's death. David was arrested for drunk driving twice and had a known cocaine addiction. He dropped out of Harvard and began working as a reporter, but shortly after visiting his grandmother Rose Kennedy in the spring of 1984, David was found dead at the Brazilian court hotel of a drug overdose. 
Lisa Brennan Jobs was the love child of Apple tech mogul Steve Jobs and his high school sweetheart, Chrisanne Brennan. But Lisa had to endure her father's paternity denials throughout her childhood as he refused to acknowledge her while also slandering her mother in the process. He was told a Time magazine journalist, 28% of the male population in the United States could be the father. Brennan Jobs spent the majority of her childhood watching her single mother's struggle, cleaning houses and waitressing while on welfare. Her mother had to sue Jobs for child support, one of many difficulties. Brennan later wrote about it in her memoir, The Bite and the Apple. Jobs was eventually forced by the state to take a DNA test, which proved Lisa was his daughter and the two formed a sort of relationship during the teen years when she lived with him for a time. But cruel and unusual behavior by Jobs followed, which Brennan Jobs recalled in her memoir, Small Fry. In just one example, for instance, Jobs refused to get the heating fixed in her bedroom. Still, Brennan Jobs maintains that though their relationship was complicated, she and her father shared a lot of happy memories together, with Jobs even naming one of his earliest Apple personal computer models, the Lisa 1983. At the very end, he was so so apologetic about the times we had knit together. Anthony D. Marshall was the only son to socialite and philanthropist Brooke Astor, who was heiress to the Astor dynasty. Marshall was abused by his father and neglected by his mother as a child. Nevertheless, he had a slew of successful, high-profile careers, including working as an operative for the CIA, acting as a United States ambassador, and even became a Tony Award-winning Broadway producer. Marshall found out as his mother got older that his inheritance had been cut by half and he enacted revenge on his mother when he was put in charge of her fortune. He was later convicted of stealing millions from her and taking advantage of the fact that she suffered from Alzheimer's disease. In 2009, he was found guilty of 14 of the 16 charges filed against him, including first-degree grant larceny. The trial captivated New York with its seven-day star-studded witness lineup, which included Henry Kissinger, Barbara Walters, and the wife of Oscar de la Renta. The 89-year-old was sentenced to three years in New York State Prison, but eight weeks in, he was granted medical parole due to his Parkinson's and congestive heart failure. Marshall died a year later. Evelyn McLean was a gold rush heiress who purchased the infamous and some consider cursed 45.5 carat Hope Diamond. Why did people think it was cursed? She, along with previous and future owners, experienced a slew of tragedies after possessing the rare jewel. The diamond's origins trace back to French merchant traveler Jean-Baptiste Travanier, who likely purchased it from a Kalur mine in Golconda, India in the 17th century. Among its owners were King Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. McLean and her fiancé agreed to buy the diamond from Cartier in Paris in 1910 for $180,000. She was apparently aware of the rumored curse upon its purchase, writing in her diary, Then I put the chain around my neck and hooked my life to its destiny for good or evil. Unfortunately, destiny chose evil. Her son died at the age of nine, and her daughter died of drug overdose at 25. Her husband ran off with another woman and was later declared certifiably insane and eventually died in a mental hospital. Her family business also went bankrupt, and she was forced to sell their newspaper, The Washington Post. McLean died with massive debts, and her remaining children sold the Hope Diamond to Henry Winston, who gifted it to the Smithsonian. Christina Onassis, Aristotle Onassis' daughter, led a fraught and tragic life despite her wealth. Heiress to the Onassis Greek shipping fortune, Christina was diagnosed with clinical depression and had a pill addiction. Christina also did not approve of her stepmother, Jackie Kennedy, whom she considered to be a gold digger. She referred to Kennedy as, quote, my father's unfortunate obsession. As a child, her family was humiliated when her father was the subject of a very public case of adultery. She struggled with drug use, her weight, and was known for giving cash to her friends just to convince them to hang out with her. She was married four times, and none of her marriages lasted more than two years. Her mother died of a drug overdose, and her brother died in a plane crash, among other tragic details. Christina was found dead in a bathtub at the age of 37 at a friend's house in Buenos Aires. 
reportedly suffering from a heart attack. Stepsister Henrietta Gelber said, She was one of those people who would never be happy. She would become impatient. It had all come too easily. All the money, houses all over the world, few real responsibilities. Much like the Kennedy family, the Guinness dynasty has a long history of tragedy, including the sad life and death of Lady Henrietta Guinness, one of the heiresses of the Guinness brewing fortune. A number of Henrietta's relatives died in car crashes, and Henrietta nearly died in one herself when boyfriend Michael Beebe crashed his Aston Martin in the French Riviera. Luckily, she survived. But her relationship with Beebe was just one of several doomed romances. She almost married an Italian sous chef and nearly married her hairdresser after gifting him with a 70,000 pound salon before finally marrying medical school dropout and bartender Luigi Marinori. She and Marinori moved into a cozy cottage in Spoleto, Italy and had a daughter, Sarah. But while things seemed to be finally going her way, it wasn't to be. Henrietta also had been hospitalized for depression, and in 1978, she took her own life by jumping off the famous Ponte delle Torri Bridge. She once said, If I had been poor, I would have been happy. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, Please call or chat online with the National Suicide, Suicide Prevention Line. Suicides, get out of here. They were all taken out. See, drug overdoses. Marilyn Monroe, you remember that? She actually went to Kennedy to tell him about Jackie, and that's why they were together. And this is where their tiff started, because Marilyn Monroe was actually tapped by, well, what did they call them? Aliens, time travelers, or foreign assets? That's what the CIA would call them, right? <laughs> the crazies. You know, so she came in and they took her out. Elvis was actually in the know as well, and they took him out. And so when it's a drug overdose, they take you out to make you look like you're a junkie and you're crazy. And usually the people that you handle, you turn into drug addicts. And if they can't be turned into drug addicts, then you just pose them as that. You know, these are the things that make you go, hmm. See, if you watched this video 10 years ago, you'd be like, oh, that's so tragic. Money doesn't make you happy. And you end there. And that's why you're in perpetual state of need and lack because the universe is telling you, oh, my God, if you have money, it's tragic. It's really not. If you have money, right, and everybody else doesn't, you have power. And with power comes obedience. And you must be obedient. You're not allowed to break the mold and not be obedient. You must obey. That is one of the biggest lies ever. Money doesn't make you happy, per se, depending on what makes you happy, but it's a lot easier to cry in a Lamborghini than it is on roller skates. Let's be factual. So the fact of the matter is, they have told you, oh, oh money is makes the, it's the source of all evil. It totally is, because that's how they keep you into those invisible chains, so that's the truth. Now, speaking of truth, so weird, third time's a charm, like I said, guess what the final vote was this time? Oh, look, 19 votes for Jim Jordan, 212 for Jeffries, and McCarthy picked an extra one at 203. Oh, let's go. Round three. You know, I really wish we'd rip off the Band-Aid and just be clear. Pisses me off. Pisses me off. Math, math, the source of everything. Numbers tell you everything. Oh, he was kidnapped. They wanted 17 million. Couldn't be 15 or rounded off to 20. Specific 17, which is, hey, the good guys, time travel, aliens, they've got him. And they're like, no, bend the knee. But he didn't bend the knee. I don't give a shit. And so they put it out to the media, the one that they didn't control. So he had to do something. You see, this is what you got to pay attention to. Numbers. How do you know you're sick? Numbers. They measure numbers. Concentration, numbers. Numbers, 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 numbers. Source of everything. Numbers. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Now, I'll bid you goodbye tomorrow. No show. 
I got mom things to do, school conference, whatever. Actually, even got a notice. Never mind. I'm not going to say it out loud. I've got a lot to do. And so, and I also have to prepare on figuring out how I'm going to do this studio. I'm trying to figure out um, stealthy ways of getting. You guys want cameras, right? Right? You want cameras? I'm actually thinking of even trolling, uh, you know, whatchamacallit, OnlyFans and putting a camera under the desk so people can look at our shoes. Probably is going to be me with slippers. So why not? Let's make money off of feet, right? Uh, I think that'll be a hoot. They'll be like, oh my God, she's doing a show live with cameras everywhere, right? But she's also streaming on OnlyFans, just her feet. Like, why not? <laughs> Troll the shit out of them. You want to pay for feet? You can look at the shoes that I wear. Or maybe when I get a manicure, I'll pose my toes for high ratings. <laughs> ah, so um, I'm working on that. I just wanted to tell you guys just a little bit of housekeeping. I am working on that. Um, I am in the middle of transforming. I haven't even started yet. Let's not lie. Of transforming one of the rooms um, in the apartment. A bedroom is now going to become a full-blown studio. And so, you know, I thought it's got, I have to have cameras everywhere. It's going to be one aerial from the ceiling. Like, I'm already plotting it out because this is going to be one of the, and I'm going to leave it. Let's just say, it's time to flip the script. We're writing history now. So, um, yeah, and I am going to put a foot cam. There will be a foot cam just on OnlyFans. And, you know, I'm usually in slippers anyway. I hardly go commando. I have a thing about maybe it's because, you know, people are going to be like, oh, your zodiac sign is Pisces. That's what, actually, I'm the 13th one specifically with my birthday. But let's pretend that the going theme of the 12 is correct. Yes, I am. And we have sensitive feet. I, you know, have I ever told you guys about the time that I had this um, New York mobster son, legit, hit on me at, um, where was I? I was, um, I was by Columbus Circle at the market and I was getting something to drink and I stepped outside to have a cigarette and I was wearing these platform sandals that I had gotten from Topshop in in England and they were platforms. They were so They were the most comfortable shoes and I only paid like 10 pounds for them. Uh, most comfortable shoes ever. And um, he looked at me and, you know, I was just normal. I was, who was it? I was wearing... The shoes, I was wearing a skirt, right, which is like a skirt with shorts under it. It was homemade. I was actually wearing volleyball shorts and a mini skirt and a sweater. So I looked like a college kid because I was attending school for my licensing, right? And um, he checked it out, and I was like, you know, I look like a mess. Like, why would anyone? But he was looking at my feet. I didn't recognize that until we went out to eat, and I wore closed-toe shoes. Um, our first date, and he's like, oh, you changed your shoes. And I'm like, what the, um, this is weird. But I was like, maybe he's just observant, or maybe he's gay, you know, checking out my feet. Then I find out he's, like, linked to the, you know, Lucky Luciano, one of the kids. And I was like, oh, so he's trying to impress me. This is great. This was great training for me, right, <laughs> to understand how this goes. Anyway, and... Um, uh, two days later, he took me out to, uh, a trattoria and, um, I was wearing my sandals cause I was wearing a cute dress, right? It was like one of those eyelet dresses, you know, white ones. And 
you know, and, you know, you sit at a table, you cross your legs, and my dress was up to my knee. It was modest. It wasn't a mini skirt, right? And there I am smiling, and I'm like, hey. And for me, it was just dinner, and I was like, oh, I want to know more about this dude. And, um, And he kept looking at my feet, and I'm like, is there something wrong? He's like, I really like what I'm looking at. And I was like, um, oh shit, did I not shave correctly? Do I have strawberry legs? Like what's going on here? You know? And you know, how us women start to get self-conscious. And then I uncross my legs and kind of tuck them on. He's like, no, 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 no. Keep them in view. And I was like, what? I love your feet. And I was like, what the? Yeah. So that was weird. That was super weird. And I was like, yeah. So that was really weird. And I noted it's weird, left it as weird until it got really weird, which I don't want to stay on air. And I was like, yeah, so it's not happening. That's super weird. I'm busting out. You know, I just never called him again. Um, and I asked the, my private contracting company to ensure that that phone could not get through. Um, because we had those abilities of blocking people from calling us back in the early 2000s. Just you didn't have it. Um, all right. So let's end today with scariest thing caught live on camera, on live TV. Sorry. But here's the thing. I want you guys to, here's like a little task of using scrutiny. For those that are watching, um, I'll leave that. For those that are watching, those of you that are listening, you're only going to listen, but you might actually figure it out while you're listening to, why is everybody calling me now? It's like, I finally get my phone back because I left it in the car and it was lost. And it's like, all the phone calls are coming in and I've got shit ton to do. Is it really five o'clock? No, it's not. It's three. Why does my watch say it's five p.m.? That's really weird. It says it's 5.59. That's so weird. Um, 5.09. Okay. That's not even remotely the heck all right so we're going to continue um with this and i'd like you to just take a look at this video rather than an outro of music we're going to have an outro of video and there's one thing i'd like you to catch on to this hopefully you can get that discernment so let's get cranking with the scariest things caught on live tv Whilst most paranormal videos can be incredibly suspect, when said videos are captured on live TV, it makes them that much more credible. So, from a holographic Pope to the mysterious identity of Teddy Perkins, join us. Whilst in the middle of a news piece, these Honduran presenters were shocked when one of their glasses suddenly moved on its own. Clearly confused, they play the oddity off and continue on. However, host Carlos Molina later admitted that he felt a sharp chill down his spine seconds before the glass moved. He also denied any speculation that production staff were behind a hoax. Further, in response to the skeptics, Molina claimed he tried to move the glass, but that it was stuck to the table. 
he is convinced that the incident was supernatural and even confessed that it left him traumatized. During a recent broadcast, Pope Francis appeared at his window to bless the crowd. However, bizarrely, as he stepped back inside, he seemed to vanish in thin air. He just disappeared. He goes bye bye. Even curiouser, the Vatican removed all copies of this video, leaving only the official version. As to why the Vatican would do this, some believe Francis was sick that day, or alternatively, that this is a common safety protocol, perhaps to prevent assassination attempts. Further, though it sounds unbelievable, basic holograms have been presented on multiple occasions, and it makes sense that if such technology exists, it would be far more advanced behind closed doors. During the news coverage of the 2011 Japanese tsunami, some viewers spotted a mysterious creature in the background. In the video, a black bird mysteriously appears and disappears. Even stranger, in slow motion, it seems to repeatedly vanish and reappear. Still, skeptics were quick to conclude that the bird was the result of poor video compression, yet some paranormal enthusiasts are certain it was Mothman. First seen in West Virginia, 1966, the creature was routinely spotted for the next year. Finally, on December 14, 1967, it was seen above the Silk Bridge. Eerily, the next day, the bridge suddenly collapsed, and the Mothman vanished. Ever since, it's allegedly been observed before multiple disasters, leading some to conclude it's a premonition of death. So could the unusual creature actually be the Mothman? For years, skeptics questioned why no UFO had ever been captured on live TV. However, in today's world, they are captured on almost a daily basis. Yet there has arguably been no better footage than this video from Peru. In February 2020, the channel Capital TV collected an audience of 200 people to wait at the Yaya Beach, a UFO hotspot. The hosts were doubtful that they would catch something, but to their amazement, they filmed something spectacular. In the middle of the broadcast, some audience members noticed an unexplained light above the sea. Está, está encima de la playa. No está en el cerro, miren. 
A ver, todos tranquilos, por favor, están grabando con los celulares, lo que estamos viendo es una luz muy potente que se está acercando en estos momentos al campamento, se está acercando al campamento, quiero por favor que tenga mucha calma, se está acercando, está flotando encima de las aguas. Soon the excited crowd were at hand with their laser pens, shining them at the object, and incredibly, it seemed to respond back. Wait, I have to say something on this. I'm sorry I interrupted. I will play a song since I interrupted. Green lasers are banned from being shown into airspace. They say they mess with planes. But what if there's no plane in your vicinity and you shine it? <laughs> You're not allowed to. Maybe you should FOIA and find out why. Racionales. Eh, mira, no se eh, mueven. Podría ser, podría ser pescadores que están en la zona y que están lanzando, no, pero son la luz es muy potente. La luz es muy potente. Though some have argued that it could be a bot, those who saw it maintain it was a UFO. In previous videos, I have covered the controversial theory that legendary musician Michael Jackson actually faked his death. However, one piece of supposed evidence that I neglected to mention was the mysterious identity of Teddy Perkins and his odd appearance at the 2018 Emmys. The Jackson-inspired character first appeared on the acclaimed show Atlanta, where he was played by Donald Glover. Yet mysteriously, the Perkins at the Emmys wasn't played by Glover, nor by his brother Stephen, or co-star Lakey Stanfield. Additionally, Atlanta director Hiromi Rai refused to reveal who it was. This led to theories that Perkins was really Jackson in disguise, and that he used the show to tell his story. In particular, believers point to this short clip, in which he critically says that someone did kill him, but that he's still alive. This have been a message. Though some Jackson fans say yes, others aren't so sure. What do you think? After the end of an interview, this UK politician walks away with a distinctly red briefcase. However, once he passes this parked car, the case now becomes green. Weirder still, you can see the colour is still red just before he comes back into frame. Viewers were obviously confounded, with some claiming it was evidence of government manipulation. Whatever the case, the mystery doesn't end there. Only a few minutes earlier, the briefcase literally transformed in front of the camera, this time from green to red. Is it possible that this is video evidence of a glitch in the matrix? In the aftermath of the 2017 Mexico City earthquake, it was the Enrique Rabasman school that made international headlines. 
In a story that gripped the nation, rescuers made massive efforts to free Frida Sophia, a little girl they'd found trapped in the debris. Bizarrely, however, it was later discovered that Frida didn't exist. So who did rescuers see and talk to? Eerily, whatever the answer, people later unearthed this creepy news coverage, in which a face can be seen in the wreckage. Just who was this child? A spirit who died years prior to the earthquake? Or something far worse? Well, I mean, sometimes, you know, aliens get into alien things and they just fuck shit up because they get caught when they blow buildings up. They have to be smarter than that. They've got to leave and wait for a couple of hours to pass. Not hang out to watch the show, right? That's usually the way it's done. But anyway, let's keep going. Let's end this with a song. God bless everyone. I will see you on Thursday.
have a very, have a very hallowed love to go live with that. Because the Bible is history. Even though my name is telling me that people don't believe what they want to believe. But now it's the U.S. report. So I need an attorney. I want to go live. I want to live on every platform because it is going to blow your mind. And you are going to be amazed at that picture. Came to your mind, that then it came to your mind, and when you thought about me, you are going to be a baby. I can't hear you. I want an attorney, and I want to go on. I need an attorney. I can tell you you did it, but everybody needs to know this house. Oh, that was interesting. We should get her an attorney. I wonder if we're Oh, is that. it really? Oh yes, yeah, so I'm counting 15, 16 thread now with lots of attachments, 17, 18. Oh, oh, I hate it when things run off. I will walk along singing with women.